Turn with me, please, to Exodus chapter 20. We are finishing up our 11-week study on the Ten Commandments, a week of introduction, one commandment per Sunday, 11 weeks. Uh, our series is called the Gos- A Gospel Perspective, the Ten Commandments, A Gospel Perspective. Um, where we are going, though, for the next two weeks, we're going to do a series, um, kind of some, some, some practicality to it. Uh, we're going to talk about the essential church, and there's a lot of misinformation, maybe, and maybe some confusion about what is the nature and the purpose of the church. Uh, we could do a two-year study on it. We'll do it in two weeks. Um, so we'll hit it quickly, and we're going to move. We have uh, a bunch of things we want to talk about and discuss and look at Scripture. We'll go through that in two weeks. And when we're done after that study, we're going to jump into the book of Philippians called Gospel Joy. It's a great book. Um, we're looking at some verses today. Um, so be reading it if you have um, your, your Bible online or maybe an app or just plain old Bible. Um, read book of Philippians, be in the book. If you can read it once a day, that would be great. Get that book kind of saturated in your soul, and then we'll look at it together and preach through it. Um, I think something like, I don't got, got to totally map that, but somewhere in the middle of, middle of the uh, beginning of January, we should be done with it. It'll take us through the Christmas season. Okay, so Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. Turn there with me. Let me read to you the Word of God, uh, the infallible inspired authoritative word. Exodus chapter 20, what I want to do is verse 17 is our text, but let me give you all the commandments in order, so we kind of put things in context. Chapter 20, verse 1 says this, and God spoke all these words, he's speaking to Israel. First commandment, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, commandment number one, so he's setting it up, this is who I am. We're going to talk about that in a second, actually. This is who I am. I brought you out, and now the commandment number one, have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. Number three, verse seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Commandment number five, verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, commandment number eight, you shall not steal. Commandment number nine, last week, Perry Jones taught, you shall not bear false witness. And commandment number 10, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Shall not cover his male servant, his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is in your, that is your neighbor's. The final commandment, you shall not covet. That commandment, in some ways, is, is very distinct to the other commandments. Commandments like stealing and lying, committing adultery, is something that, although it starts in the, in the heart, kind of shows itself, shows its hand, or seen and acted out, as being lived out, I should say, being lived out. On the surface, commandments 5 through 9 appear to deal with external conduct primarily, at first anyway, where this commandment deals primarily with the motives of the heart. That's the difference. Each Each of the commandments governs an inner attitude as well as outward actions, but they generally show themselves externally, and then as we bring application, it kind of does reveal our hearts. But this 10th commandment is a little different in that it is about our attitudes. It really is about our affections. It really is about our desires. 
this commandment about coveting is not concerned first with what we do. It's really more about what we want to do. It shows and proves the reality that God knows the heart. God judges the heart. Now, that, that could be scary. Coveting can be things that are in the heart that, that really is that's just between you and the Lord. You're the only two that know it. I mean, we could judge external motives and, you know, uh, external. We can judge internal motives by looking at the external. But it's an educated guess. But here we see that God knows the heart. God knows the heart. We, we can't flee from his presence. God knows the motives. He knows whether or not you're here this morning, you're watching online, whether or not we are secretly coveting, even if we're trying to hide it, even if we're trying to suppress it. God knows. J.I. Packer wrote this, God's searchlight moves from actions to attitudes from motives, excuse me, from motions to motives, from forbidden deeds to forbidden desires, end quote. That's what's different about this commandment. It's about motive. It's about desire. Now, let me just quickly say, as we look at uh, four points uh, on what this is all about, let me just remind you of two, what well, we've, we've talked about, two really large um, uh things to be thinking about as we look at the commandments, kind of contextual. Let me just remind you, we said revelation and relationship, that the Ten Commandments is the revealed will of God. It is, it is the, the revelation of who God is, a reflection his moral of his moral attributes, of his goodness, of his kindness, as God reveals to us the Ten Commandments. It's a reflection, the law is a reflection of the lawgiver. It also reveals our hearts. Shows us where our hearts are at. It's revelation, but it's also relationship. Remember, very importantly, that the Ten Commandments were given to Israel after their salvation. They were redeemed from slavery. They were in bondage to, to slavery as a picture of a bondage to sin. God sets them free by His grace, by His love. And then in that love, in that grace, in that redemption, He gives them their obligations. You see, religion is, I'm going to obey God so that God will now love and accept me. That's religion. The gospel is, God loves and accepts me because of the perfect work of Jesus. And because of grace and because of what Christ has done, I will respond in obedience. It's a slippery slope, but a dangerous one. We want to be gospel-centered. We want to respond in obedience because of what Christ has already done in our lives by setting us free by his grace. We also remember the relationship is that God promised in the Old Testament that he would have a people and give us his spirit, that the law of God would be written on our heart. We sang about that. That's why in obedience to Christ, if you're trying to obey God in order to get him to love you, man, you, you, you're, you're in trouble. But if you're responding to God in gratitude and love and thanksgiving because of the amount of grace and mercy and kindness he's shown to us in the gospel, that will turn our obedience to joy. Big difference. This commandment is no different. Coveting. And what we're going to end where we just, we're going to end where I just ended just now, but let's look at what is coveting first, okay? So let's remember, he saved us, redeemed us by grace, and he says, here is my commands. So what is coveting? What is and what is not coveting? Coveting is not 
Coveting does not mean that all our affections, all our desires are wrong. All, all longing is somehow immoral. Any, any time that you want to be in a different situation or, or a different circumstance or you hope to have something that you are lacking in, that somehow that is automatically coveting. That's not true. We've been saying all along that Jesus fulfills the law completely and he fulfills this law as well. But we know that Jesus longed for things. Forty days he fasted, we remember. I think it's safe to say he longed for something to eat. Forty days. I long for something to eat after 40 minutes. That's Okay, <clears throat> 40 days. He was hungry. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was abandoned. He, he was all alone. I, I don't think it's wrong for us to say that there had to be a longing for companionship. I mean, he told them, pray. Pray, stay awake and pray with me. He knew it was like to suffer. And to ask God, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me, but not my will, yours be done. Do I need to drink this cup of wrath? There's a longing. He longed for something to drink. I thirst on the cross. Yet Jesus never broke the 10th commandment. So we see that the 10th commandment does not prohibit every kind of longing, want, or, or thought of having something better, nicer. The term coveting means to desire or to lust or to crave or to treasure something. It's not simply wanting something, uh, uh, but it, it's sinfully wanting something. Our problem is not that we desire things, but that we desire the wrong things or desire good things in the wrong way. Wanting something, lusting after something we don't have. Coveting is not just saying, I would like uh, I mean, we have dreams, aspirations. Some of you may be saving for a house. Some of you may, uh, you know, be starting school, looking at, you know, different career paths. That That's all fine and dandy. Right? It's, not, it's not simply wanting something. Coveting is not just saying, I want that. It, coveting is taken much further when it says, why do you get to have that? Coveting wants what other, people's have, other people have, and we overly desire these fleeting things, these worldly pleasures. And it's not that God says shame on you for wanting things, but he's, what we're going to see here is what we want or what we should desire is something that God says he will give us that is much better, that, that lasts much longer than what we can receive in this world. Notice how God gives us the commandment with examples, Right? The command with examples. He says, do not covet. Look at verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Right? Wow, look at that house. <laughs> look at all the toys in the garage. You've got four wheelers, boats. Life is so unfair. That guy's such a jerk. I don't know how he get all that stuff. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or husband. Boy, she's really nice. Quite attractive. I wish my wife would age like that. Look at her husband, as the ladies would say. He's so nice. What a what a good guy. Cares for the kids. Why am I stuck with this guy? I wish I had married someone like. I would be so much happier if. Covet your neighbor's wife. Or his male servant. Or his female servant. Or his ox. Or his donkey. I don't know if you ever thought about coveting one of those things. I certainly have not. But. But. Man, my car is falling apart. Look at that nice car. 
I can't afford one. Look at him. Look at her. They go wherever they want. There goes my neighbor. Off to the airport again. And I love this last sentence. Just in case you're like, you know what? It doesn't say anything about an iPhone. It doesn't say anything about a laptop. A boat. It's donkeys and servants, slaves. Like, I don't have any of those. So God just adds this last sentence. Or anything that is your neighbor's. I wish I had a better job like so-and-so. Why can't I be as smart as so-and-so? You know, I, I want the body, the friends, the family, the kids, the parents. Why is everything in life so hard for me and not them? What makes coveting such a serious sin? Not just thinking it'd be great to have a bigger house or a better paying job, but I want someone else's stuff. Longing for somebody else's stuff. We covet whenever we set our hearts on anything that is not rightfully ours. John Mackey, uh, Mackey said this, a consuming desire about coveting, a consuming desire to possess in a wrong way something belonging to another person, end quote. Simple. I want their house. I want their job. If only that, have what they have, I'd be happy. And we get a glimpse at what coveting really means. We get a, we get a glimpse at what the foundation of coveting is really all about by the words of the Apostle Paul to the Colossi church. This is what he says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Kill the flesh. Sexual immorality, pornea, all kinds of sexual sin. Impurity, passion, evil desire, and what? Covetousness. Which is what? Idolatry. Not only like, you know, you put this sin in the middle of this sentence. I mean, in the middle of all this impurity and evil desires. I mean, it doesn't say, you know, taking a candy bar or going five minutes, five miles over the speed. Like, these are some heavy sins. Not only does he, does he say, look, it's covetous. This is in this group. But he says it's synonymous with idolatry. Why? Because the things coveted become God to us. They become your God controlling your life. The, they, they reside, the things that you covet reside at the center of your life. Good picture of what coveting is. But what are some examples of those who covet? Think about King David. King David coveted Bathsheba. He saw her and wanted her. And he went on to violate the seventh commandment by what? Committing adultery to her? Adultery with her? The eighth commandment by taking the wife of another man he stole from him? And the sixth commandment by having Bathsheba's husband Uriah the Hittite murdered? all started with coveting. Last week, Pastor Jones uh, Perry uh, mentioned King Ahab. If you remember, King Ahab went with his wife's plan, Jezebel, uh, to, to bear false witness against Naboth. If you remember that, violating the ninth commandment, saying that he, he had cursed God, he lied, the, the, the false witness lied, 1 Kings 21. But that all began when, when King Ahab coveted Naboth's vineyard. And that propelled him to break other commandments, like murder, like false witness. Naboth is a good example. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Ahab's heart was in the wrong place. He coveted and he committed false witness, lied, had someone lie and false witness, and then murder. Then there was Achan. You know the story of Achan? Joshua 7. Israelites had been given the green light to enter the promised land through Joshua's leading them. And God delivered Jericho into the Israelites' hand. The Israelites moved on to a city called Ai. It's actually spelled Ai. 
But the Israelites were, were, were defeated. Many, many died. And Joshua said to the Lord, like, what's going on? And God told Joshua there was some Israelites that were, that were sinning against him, that, that were, were, were taking devoted things that they were not supposed to do. And guess who it was? It was Achan. So they went to Achan, Joshua chapter 7, who confessed his sin. He said this, When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak with shinar and and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, like I couldn't help myself. I Then I coveted them, he said, and I took them. And see, he says, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. You caught me. I coveted and I stole. You think everything would go well. Well, it didn't. Joshua said, take the man out, his family, his children, his livestock, and kill him and burn him. Not a good day for his family. God made us people who rightfully desire things. We desire doing things and motivates us to work. We desire love and friendship and it draws us into community. But like everything else about us, we are corrupted by sin. We often want the wrong thing in the wrong way, in the wrong timing, for the wrong reasons. I mean, it even goes back to Genesis. If you want to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Before Eve took the forbidden fruit, she coveted it. Genesis chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took its fruit and ate it. Gave it to her husband who was what? With her. Right next to her. And he ate it. This was obviously not admiring what a nice piece of fruit. I wonder what that tastes like, right? It was, it was, it was, she wasn't admiring that. It was because Satan tempted her to sinfully desire something that was not there for her to take. Eve took the fruit to gain something she was not intended to have. Just watch a, a, a bunch of five, six, seven, three-year-olds play together, right? Thousands of toys scattered everywhere. What toy does your three-year-old want? The one that the other kid has. Like, really? There's 7,000 toys to play with. I want that one. Like, no. <laughs> it's a desire to have something that others have, and it causes us to be bitter when someone else has it and we think we deserve it. When, when, a, when a co-worker, I don't step on any toes here, but when a co-worker gets the, the advancement, maybe doesn't deserve it, you do. When a roommate finds a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you're still single. When a friend goes on dream vacations, when you're checking Facebook, or should I say covetous book, Wow, their life looks so much better. Look at that picture. We have no clue, right? James says this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desire, that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it? You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. Hmm, so you fight and quarrel. Now, remember the context, right? 
So Israel has been delivered from slavery. They're on Mount Sinai. They're receiving the law. And as you know, as things go further, the law has been given. But Israel's going to enter the promised land and everyone's going to get a piece of property. They're going to recognize that it's God's sovereign hand in Israel and God owns the earth and God is giving them property for each one to have. They are to enter the promised land where they would be safe, where there would be a time of worship, the one true God, and the, the, he would divide the land up so everyone would have a piece of land to live on. It was that inheritance that God promised that kept Naboth from selling his property to King Ahab. He knew, Ahab, he knew that it belonged to his fathers and that they shouldn't sell the property. That was God's given, that was God's, that was their inheritance that God had given them. And they recognized that. If the Israelites had recognized that everything they possessed was the result of God's promise, God's goodness and kindness to them, they would be less inclined to covet what was not theirs. And that's true for us as well. If the Israelites or any of us look at possessions, the things that others have, and see it as ultimately belonging to the king of kings and the sovereign Lord, given by God, who distributes according to his will and purposes, we wouldn't question the will and kindness of God toward our neighbor. We would be content with God's provision in our life. You know, Job 1, the Lord gave and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We could see how this commandment, thou shalt not cover, covet, that if we keep it, we, we would love our neighbor and avoid sinning against our neighbor and avoid breaking all the other commandments. The reason that do not covet is the last commandment is because it, it really is appropriate, an appropriate manner, uh, a summary of everything that has come before that, all other nine commandments. Think of it this way. It really is impossible to covet and love the Lord thy God with our whole soul, mind, and strength, and to covet and love your neighbor as yourself. But why do we covet? Coveting happens when I, when you, when we, when our hearts are not content. Covenant takes root in our hearts when contentment is missing and lacking. When we covet, we don't believe that God is big enough or that God cares about us. We take matters into our own hands because we are not happy with our place. Our discontentment is an expression of how we think God is not, is not only incapable to take care of us, but doesn't love us enough or, or that he somehow owes us something that we don't have. To covet is to say, I know you're the, the Lord. Look at verse 1, Lord, verse, two, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I know you delivered me, but... The next verse, verse 3. I want another God. I know you provided. I know you cared for. I know you delivered. But you know what? Thank you, but... The very first commandment. I want another God. That, that can take care of all the things that I want. You violate the very first commandment. So it's not really that strange that the Ten Commandments ends with don't cover your neighbor's donkey, right? Until you realize God is saying, I am the only God. Don't, don't turn to statues. Don't turn to idols. Don't turn to things. Don't turn to circumstances, abilities, friends, money, or whatever it is. Let nothing in your life, let nothing in your life, nothing else capture your gaze and affection ahead of me, before me. As we pointed out earlier, Paul's calls coveting idolatry. 
Because the God, uh, covenant says, I, I need this to live. I need that person. I need that place. I need that possession. I need that power. I need that ability. I need what you have in order for me to be happy. It makes, really does, it makes a God out of our desires. Kevin DeYoung wrote this. He said this really smart. The Tenth Commandment is not anticlimactic afterthought. Just add it to the end. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, and try to be happy with what you have. The commandment not to covet is actually the practical summation and heart-level culmination of, of the other nine commandments, end quote. You see, family, contentment is a safeguard against the temptation to break this commandment and all the commandments five to nine. The, the discontented person whose sinful inner desire makes him so self-centered and so self-absorbed sees other people as just things to use in order to just fuel greed. But a contented man, a contented woman is free to focus on loving God and loving others. That's why Paul wrote to young Pastor Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Why do we covet? We covet because we're not content. Now, the Apostle Paul, I got Philippians on the brain. I know that. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, talks about contentment. Again, the, the antidote to coveting. Paul writes this. I rejoiced in the Lord. Notice where his rejoicing is. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be what? Content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Verse 13, the most taken out of context scripture in all the Bible that was free. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. After Paul's unwavering in his trust and rejoicing in the Lord greatly, he says, I know you had concern for me. I get that. I, I know you wanted to help me, but I realized in God's providence it was lacking. You couldn't come, but, but let me tell you, I'm okay. Why? Because I'm rejoicing in the Lord. I'm content. Where I'm at in God's providence and God's sovereignty working in my life, in order to be content we, and not covet, we must first, like Paul, trust God's providence and his will for our lives. I mean, how many people do we know are just killing themselves to keep up with the neighbors? Not that we shouldn't work. Not that we shouldn't work hard. But contentment is short-lived if it's found in just the things we have. Some social status. Paul learned to be content. And let me tell you something. That wasn't easy for the Apostle Paul. You say, oh, yeah, he's the Apostle Paul. Well, yes and no. In fact, in, in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul writes that he would have not known what it was to covet if not the law said, you shall not covet, quoting this. Romans chapter 7. He says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me, the Apostle Paul, all kinds of covetousness. 
So she's got this battle of being content and resting in the providence, and you might be at that place today, resting in the providence and the care and, 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 and the circumstance situation you're in, and yet struggling with this all kinds of covetousness that she's struggling with. That's what Paul says. He's fighting. He's, he's learning how to be content. And I think the, the answer, Paul would say, it's found in Hebrews chapter 13. I know we covered this a few months back, but the secret. Keep your life free from money. No. From the love of money. That's coveting. And be content with what? What you have. For the reason God said... I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Recognizing the the, the promise of the presence of God, the one who loves us, cares for us, directs all our affairs for our good, his glory, gives us the strength to cope with life, is a secret of contentment and the antidote to coveting. You see, going through poverty or even going through prosperity doesn't necessarily guarantee that you will learn to be content. You may learn to get more bitter. Just like if you come to church for 20 or 30 years, doesn't guarantee that you're going to grow in maturity. Why? Because... Being content is learned to be dependent when we're dependent on Christ. A firm conviction and trust in God. You won't covet. You'll be content. A.W. Pink. Contentment is the product of a heart resting in God. It is the blessed assurance that God does all things well and is even now making all things work together for my ultimate good, end quote. Believers can avoid coveting and be content because we have God who will never leave us, who will never forsake us. We believe his promises. We're satisfied with his promises. We're satisfied with him. And we won't crave stuff. And we, we receive the blessings. And we are quick to give blessings to others. We live a life of generosity. Those who live a life, maybe you're here today, or maybe this is something you're looking for, And seeking after. Those who are content have found their ultimate treasure in the steadfast steadfast presence, provision, power, and care of God. With God as our sustaining life, with God as our greatest treasure, our ultimate satisfaction, we will be content and not covet. So before we move on to our last point, let me let me throw four questions out there. You could discuss them in your community group. You can email me. I'll send them to you. I don't have them up on the screen. But four questions given by Kevin DeYoung uh, to help us diagnose whether or not we're really struggling with or prone to coveting. Okay, four questions. Number one, you might be coveting if you're always preoccupied. No, excuse me. You might be coveting if you hurt others to get more for yourself. To hurt others in order to get more for yourself. In other words, you know those people, they have do whatever it takes to get ahead. Like cutthroat is my middle name. Get out of the way. You may be a coveter. 
Number two, you might be coveting if you're always preoccupied with making and accumulating more. Right? You're so often so busy, so distracted, and so concerned about matters that are lesser important than what that really needs to be important. Right? So the thing about possessions, the more you possess, the greater the danger that they start to possess you. It's not that having possession is wrong. The question really you got to ask is, is what I'm gaining making me more generous and grateful or doing more collecting and storing for myself? Preoccupation with stuff. Number three, you might be coveting if you're unwilling to give up what you already have, right? So some people, they may not be working, 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 working really hard. They're just keeping, 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 keeping what they have, right? They hold on to it tightly. One pastor told me, if you, the more you hold on to it, the more it hurts when God rips it from your hands. Number four, you might be coveting if you're frequently grumbling. Uh-oh. All right, raise your hand for those. No, I'm just kidding. Or raise your hand if you know someone sitting next to you. No. Grumbling about your house, your spouse, the quality or quantity of your possession, or the general state of your life, right? How easy is it to be lured and to think that this next thing will be it? That's all I need. So let's, let's ask the question. You don't have to answer now. Think about it. What is it that you daydream about all the time? What is it that your heart longs for more than anything? What do we chase after? What is the one thing that you think you need to have in order to be truly happy, joyful? Even if it's a good thing, but it's become an ultimate thing, we know that that becomes an idle thing. God knows our health. God knows children and marriage matter to him. Our health matters to him. God cares about our loneliness, our health, a roof over our head, clothes on our back, food to eat. He's not unaware of those things. He knows that. But what this commandment teaches us, that God must be our, our, our decisive satisfaction, our fundamental commitment, uh, contentment. And, and this is one of the reasons, I'll just bring this up quickly. One of the reasons, and there are many, that I hate, yes, I said hate, I hate the prosperity gospel. As we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, as we mature in the gospel, the world and its goods should be getting less and less of a grip on our hearts. The prosperity gospel is the opposite. The more you grow in your spirituality, the more stuff you get. Let's be honest. It's hard. It's, it, it can be, it can be difficult if we're honest. That we would want the latest goods, you know, promising the greatest cure for what the, the world tells us is our biggest problem. Like, you need this car, you need those clothes, you need those friends, you need this, you know, that's what you need. Here's the cure. Go buy this, or go get that, or go chase after this. That's what the prosperity gospel is all about. Michael Horton rightly said, beyond Merely not coveting, we need to fill our hearts, minds, and lives with the satisfaction, pleasure, and enjoyment of God and our spiritual blessings in heavenly places, which Paul lists in Ephesians 4 as our election, redemption, inheritance, justification, calling, sealing, and keeping in Christ. Moreover, he writes, we need to get beyond self-interest, even interest in our own salvation, and take pleasure 
in finding new avenues of glorifying God and serving our neighbor, end quote. That's a great quote. It would be easy for me to covet larger churches, a greater theological degree. I mean, look at the false teachers and, and these, these churches that are, that are you know, uh, racking in all these things. Even false teaching, it could be luring. And be honest, too. Watching co-workers on Facebook who have retired, as I have, baking in the sun seven days a week can be luring. Relaxing. But the only thing that helps me to stay focused and, and not covet those things for long is the gospel. Is the gospel. I'm reminded of the beauty and the glory and the incalculable worth of knowing Christ and making him known, and it doesn't compare. How to overcome. Let me give you four applications of gospel application of overcoming coveting. Number one, we must remember, as we've done with all the other commandments, that Jesus Christ... God in the flesh is the ultimate law keeper. And he himself fulfills the commandment with perfection and righteousness. We affirm that Christ came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law, Matthew 5. The scriptures over and over talk about Christ's sinlessness. And that means Jesus in every way kept the Ten Commandments. Never, ever did he say, as I mentioned before, I want to have this or I envy that person or what they have. We covet all, all kinds of things, assigning things and, and, and things of this world of, uh, of this greater treasure rather than the greatest treasure who gave his life to make us his treasure. The gospel is that Christ's righteous ability not to sin, never covet, his righteousness is by faith imputed to us, the unrighteous coveters. That's the gospel. His perfect life, his atoning death, justifies me by faith. That's the gospel. That's the grace of God. We must remember that. Number two, Jesus always trusted in God's provision. Even when the world, from the world's perspective, it looked foolish for him to do so. During his suffering, his physical and emotional pain, he was hated and abandoned, rejected by everyone, endured so much. The brutal beatings, the, the excruciating pain of being crucified on a cross, he still trusted God. God's provision for him, First Peter 2, when he was reviled, spit at, mocked, beaten, whipped, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him, the Father, who judges justly. Jesus leads the way, and the gospel shows it, that God's provision, that we can trust God's provision, no matter where you are in this life, you can trust God in his provision. Number three, Jesus had, think about this, in the garden, excuse me, in, in the wilderness, Jesus had the greatest earthly treasures brought before him as a reward. If he would just choose to follow Satan. But what did he choose? Jesus chose to be obedient 
to the Father. Satan comes and tempts Christ in the wilderness. He does three things. He says, you know, he's fasting for 40 days. He's really hungry. And Satan says, if you're the son of man, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Show forth your power. Then Satan brings him to the top of the temple and said, jump, and God will save you. Testing God. Third, Satan then took Jesus to a high mountain. And what he said, he said, bow down and worship me. And I will give you the, all the kingdoms of this world. All three temptations, Jesus was offered a shortcut. A shortcut to possessions, a shortcut to power, a shortcut to authority, being lured by the pleasures and power of this world. In the wilderness, though, Christ did not covet the food that Satan tempted him to make. He didn't covet the glory that he would receive to bow his knee to Satan. Instead, he, he, he loved the Father and he obeyed the Father more than food, more than passing pleasures of the day. And each temptation, Christ refrained from taking what was offered to him by trusting what rightfully belonged to God in total trust and obedience to him. Jesus reveals what love looks like. The gospel shows that that contentment in God looks like by trusting God and obeying God. Fourth, the gospel. Jesus would have bypassed the cross by creating bread, by bowing to Satan, and he would immediately at that moment receive the kingdom of this world, but he chose not to. He chose to love and obey the Father and receive from him what? A future kingdom. That's part of the key to all this. That's part of the key to us. Jesus, if you read the gospel accounts, Jesus had one thing in mind, it seemed like. And that was the plan and purpose of the Father to die on a cross, to be crucified on behalf of sinners, and to rise from the dead. In fact, Luke puts it this way, that Christ steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Even in the midst, in the depths of the anguish of the garden, not my will but yours be done. Christ had this unwavering, firm, fixed thought, eyes, heart, attitude, desire upon heavenly things, not earthly possessions, not on wealth and transient glory. Christ did not pursue the shortcuts to offer to him to rule the nations. No, he was content with obeying, loving, following the fathers as he looked to what? To the cross. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, chapter 11, all the people of faith, remember, we're surrounded by so a great cloud of witness. Those who, they're not our heroes, they look to the hero, Jesus. Let us also look to the hero. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us, what? Looking to Jesus. Not looking to things of this world. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice it wasn't the joy of going to the cross. It was the joy that was set before him. We've talked about this. We did Hebrews. The, the joy of, of, of being obedient, yes. The joy of having his inheritance, yes. The joy of being finished with the work of which he came to do, yes. But the greatest joy that was before him was his future reunion with the Father in heaven. It says, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
And while Jesus was on this earth, the greatest joy, I, I want to say this, you could agree with me or disagree with me, but the greatest joy was the work finished, yes, but the return of glory. Being with the Father where he was from all eternity. Receiving the Father's delight and to the glory of the Father's name. And I say that because John 17, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. He sets the glory of the Father, the glorious joy of the Father before me endures the cross, despising its shame. You see, family, if we hunger and thirst for possessions, we're going to be left wanting. But if we hunger and thirst for things of heaven, we be filled, we will be filled with Christ and eternal joy. He said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. This commandment not only forbids the sinful desires of something that belongs to others, but listen now, but anything that would draw us away, draw us away from the joyful, loving, serving, and glorifying of our God in the midst of his providence in our life. Seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. It don't mean we deny our desires. It doesn't mean we lessen our desires. Actually, the opposite. We want more desires. We want more of our affections for the glory of God, more of our affection to be satisfied in God, more of an affection to have our pleasure in God. And you can see how now this commandment, as we we come to a close here, you can see how this commandment not only is fulfilled by Christ, but goes back to the very first commandment. Right? If we're not coveting or we're just having our final and first and, and most pleasurable uh, satisfaction is God alone, we won't break number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus is the one true God. He fulfills the first commandment. You shall have no other God before me. He is the radiance of the glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Hebrews chapter 3. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He fulfills. You shall have no other God. Commandment number two, you shall not make yourself a carved image. Jesus is the imi- image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. He is the exact icon, the physical representation of the invisible and unrepresentable God. Number three, take your name, the Lord, in vain. Jesus, what does it say in Philippians? He, he went to the cross. He took on human nature and died as an atoning sacrifice, and God gave him what? A name. That is above every name that everybody will bow their knee to. Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble. And you will find rest for your souls. We're in Christ. We don't work for our salvation. We rest in the finished work of Christ. Number five. Honor your father and mother. That's exactly what Jesus is. As he honored his mother and his father, went to the cross completely obedient, where he dies in our place. Those who break the fifth commandment. Number six, you shall not murder. He never had an evil thought about anyone. And then what does he do? He goes to the cross. Dies for our sins. Takes the curse, the death penalty we deserve. And is killed. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus never looked at a woman lustfully. But more than that, he is the faithful covenant husband to his bride, the church. Number eight, you shall not steal. Jesus leaves the glories of heaven, Philippians tells us, and comes to earth. Doesn't hold on to it. Let's it go. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. The opposite of thievery is generosity, and the incarnation is the infinite rich. We see the infinite rich and infinite generosity of Christ. Number nine, you shall not bear full witness. Jesus is the truth. God is the truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's the embodiment of truth. We worship the God of truth. You shall not covet. Our greatest treasure, our ultimate longing, our final hope, our eternal joy must be in God. In Christ, our Savior. And we can sing together, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. Let's respond in prayer and then in singing. Father, thank you. We admit there are so many things that grab and try to get hold of our hearts that is not worthy of it, that try to take our thoughts and desires away from you. And Father, we're reminded today that you are our great God. You are gracious and you are kind and you are loving. And Lord, we're thankful that you did not leave us in our sin, but that Jesus Christ lived that perfect life, the life we could never live. He died the atoning death in our place and for our sins. And because of Jesus, we are yours eternally. Father, help us to see the beauty and glory of Christ and treasure him above all earthly treasures to, to, to find our pleasure in your glory. We ask all this in his name. Amen.